We've been on this um, journey through the Gospel of Luke. This was a book written uh, by a man who just went around asking all kinds of people what their encounters with Jesus were like and, and bringing it all together in a way that we could see those experiences through their eyes and perhaps come to faith like them. And so that's what we're doing here in the Gospel of Luke. Well, G.K. Chesterton uh, published his spiritual autobiography in 1908. It was called Orthodoxy, and in it he wrote about an instinct that he felt inside, even from his youth. Somehow he knew that life was more than a mere jumble of facts to just be coldly analyzed, the way lots of his contemporaries were beginning to say. Life, he argued, was properly understood as a fairy tale, something to be wondered at, admired. Listen to what he wrote in Orthodoxy. He said the strongest emotion that he was experiencing was that life was as precious as it was puzzling. It was an ecstasy because it was an adventure. It was an adventure because it was an opportunity. The goodness of the fairy tale was not affected by the fact that there might be more dragons than princesses. It was good to be in a fairy tale. The test of all happiness is gratitude, and I felt grateful though I hardly knew to whom. Children are grateful when Santa Claus puts in their stockings gifts of toys or sweets. Could I not be grateful to Santa Claus when he put in my stockings the gift of two miraculous legs? It's a fun thought for a child to be thinking. We thank people for birthday presents of cigars and slippers. Can I thank no one for the birthday present of birth? There were then these two first feelings, indefensible and indisputable. The world was a shock, but it was not shocking Existence was a surprise, but it was a pleasant surprise. Chesterton was wrestling with this inherent goodness that he was experiencing in the mere fact of existence. He saw that the existence of goodness points to a source of goodness. This was a riddle that required an answer. He was trying to look beyond the gift to the giver. Is that source of goodness merely natural? Do we just thank the universe? Or is there something else? Maybe someone else. And what is the proper response to that experience of goodness? Now, I'm not naive. I know that life can be hard. Really, like any good fairy tale, our life is full of perils and heroes and villains and complicated tasks and Unexpected detours and injury and illness and enchantments and unexplainable wonders. But I agree with Chesterton that the mere fact that we live, that our bodies work the way they do, that the whole world seems to be wired to our existence, that creation is stunningly beautiful, that everything seems to be aching for relationship with everything else, makes this life a wonder. It's not just a predictable machine. Whether it's a breathtaking view of the mountains across Howe Sound or the taste of fresh Abbotsford raspberries or that intimacy of a mother with her newborn baby or just that thrill of working toward a goal together with a team, all of those things are part of the gift of life that we experience. And then when something happens that maybe gives meaning to our pain or even that heals our suffering, the wondering only increases, right? 
What is the point of this wondrous and terrifying life that we have? Is there an invitation underneath it? This world of miraculous beauty and love and mystery? What's the right way to receive all this? Today, as I mentioned, we are following through the Gospel of Luke, and we come to the story of 10 men who have experienced their share of pain and suffering. But in meeting Jesus, they receive this unexpected taste of goodness that's going to change their lives. Only one of them, however, chose to look beyond the gift to the giver. Now, if you are thinking, didn't we just hear this story recently? You're right. We just went through it in the worship series back in April. But I do think we can return to these scriptures again and again and gain some fresh insight. And so we're in Luke chapter 17. And I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or it will be up on the screen. Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. He stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week, earlier in chapter 17, Jesus described how faith as small as a mustard seed could radically change something in our lives. You might say that faith is the turning point in the fairy tale that God is writing about our lives. And now Luke gives us an illustration of that kind of mustard seed faith. So let's take a closer look at this story. Luke begins by locating Jesus traveling on his way to Jerusalem along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And we've mentioned this before, that there was this historic uh, political and religious hostility between the Jews who lived in Galilee and Judea, where Jerusalem was, and Samaria, the Samaritans who lived in between them. It was kind of a situation of mutual prejudice. If you think of how Irish Catholics and Ulster Protestants related in, uh, in Northern Ireland, that's kind of the picture you get of what's going on. And that Bible scholar Diane Chen reflects, given the deep-seated hostility between Samaritans and Jews, one would rather be in one region or another. In between is this liminal zone where no one feels at home and where the rejects of society are found. It's kind of a no man's land or maybe the misfit land. It's the one place where it's safe to be misfit. And here in this wilderness, Jesus meets meets a little broken community of misfits. It's 10 lepers. That word just means any kind of skin disease, including maybe what we would call Hansen's disease today, leprosy. 
There are all kinds of diseases that, uh, according to the Old Testament law, would put you, um, would exclude you from the community. It could be swelling, rash, shiny spots, raw flesh, all kinds of icky things. But what we need to understand is that affliction rendered people unclean. And if, if you read the law in Luke, or in uh, Leviticus 13, it says that they had to wear uh, torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. They had to live alone and live outside the camp. Sounds a little bit like some experiences we've had unkempt hair and covering the lower part of our face. Now, it seems cruel, but in a less medically advanced time, this was a matter of public health, right? Nobody wanted a skin disease pandemic spreading through the village. But imagine the perpetual shame. Pastor and theologian Thabiti Anuabwile writes, how difficult it must have been to be required to be the prophet of your own uncleanness the herald of your own unworthiness before God. Don't touch me. I'm unclean. I might make you sick. Right? Understandably, it would have saved a lot of humiliation just to retreat from society instead. Just isolate yourself. I think many of us struggled with that temptation, especially through COVID as you, and even coming out of COVID. There's that fear of like, how long do we wait till we come out and will we be accepted and all that kind of thing, right? But notice throughout the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is not like the other kind of holy people who would try and keep themselves pure. He often goes off the beaten track to find the misfits and the outsiders. And maybe that's what you need to hear today. Perhaps you feel isolated or stuck. Perhaps you're carrying something that you fear exposing to others. You're desperate to be loved, but you're fearful that you can't be. What if the church is not a society of put-together people, but a fellowship of broken people, just like these lepers? And what if Jesus wants to meet us today in this out-of-the-way place and give us a gift Well, verse 12 tells us that these 10 men met Jesus just outside of a village. Probably not a chance encounter. Maybe they were trying to grab him before he went into the village where they couldn't go. Maybe Jesus was there to find them. We don't know. But it says that they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. It's interesting, actually, that Throughout the Gospel of Luke, up to this point, the only people that have called Jesus Master are his disciples. Isn't it interesting that these misfits, these marginalized people, are the ones who seem to be cluing in before many other people as to who Jesus is? Even more, this cry, have mercy on us, have pity on us, is echo of Israel's liturgical prayers in the Psalms. It's almost like they recognize Jesus to not just be a teacher or a healer, but somehow to be in him the power or maybe even the face of God. It's almost like they're having a prayer meeting, right? Ten friends bringing their requests to God. 
And how's, how does Jesus respond? You notice he doesn't recoil from their disease. He doesn't look down on them because of their status. He's just happy to respond to their request. I notice too that he doesn't really make much of a show about what he's doing. It's not the way of Jesus. He's not looking for photo ops for his PR campaign. When he finds someone who's in distress, he just brings the power of the kingdom to bear for them out of his compassion. And the other thing that I notice is that he gives them instructions to obey before they have any tangible evidence that anything's changed. He just says, go, show yourself to the priest. In Leviticus 14, after, he, yeah, you know, after they identify all the things that make you a, public, a threat to public health, there's this process given for how to be reinstated into a community. It's, it's an eight-day process of investigations and cleansing baths and shaved head and all kinds of things that a person has to go through before they can come back. But Jesus just says, go show yourself to them as if something's happened in, in them already. Again, Diane Chan observes that the efficacy of Jesus' miracle is contingent upon the leper's obedience. Had they taken offense of Jesus' seeming inaction, they would not have been healed. The steps the ten lepers take to go to the priest are in every sense of the word steps of faith. And isn't that often true of God's answers to our prayers? Right? We ask for some intervention in things that we can't control, and even though we don't know how the answer is going to play out, we're called to live into the promise of God's care for us. God loves it, delights in it when we trust that all will be well, even though the signs aren't there yet. Well, these men head out to, to talk to the local priest and to be examined, and maybe still a little bit confused. They maybe expected the healing to happen like they'd seen other healings happen. But then as they walk, all 10 men start looking at the places where their sores had been and realize they're not there anymore. Luke, uh, chapter, or verse 14 says, as they went, they were cleansed. Just imagine the joy that's dawning on them, right? They're checking, they're checking again. Check my back, is anything there, right? They can't, they're checking all the spots, even the ones they can't see. And they're starting to think about what's gonna change, right? They are eight days away from being able to sit with the family at dinner. They're gonna be able to go to that family wedding that got announced last week. They're gonna be able to go to synagogue. Like life is changing for them. There must have been a lot of whoops and hollers and dancing and hugs happening there on the street as they headed toward the priest. And then as the rest of the group goes on, astonished at their good fortune, one of them stops and he's trying to put the pieces together. He looks back at Jesus and Jesus probably has a smile on his face. Maybe he's winking at his disciples. And I just would have loved to see the gears sort of lock into place for this man as he went, wait a second, that's amazing, right? And it's so, verse 15, it says, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God with a loud voice. And Luke often uses this phrase in his, in his uh, book for what people did when God did something amazing. It's what the shepherds did when the angels announced the birth of the Messiah in Luke 2. 
It's the same thing that people did when Jesus healed the paralytic in Luke 5 or raised the widow's son in Luke 7 or delivered the woman bent over by a spirit in Luke 13 or gave, gave the blind man sight in Luke 18. For Luke, whenever something amazing happens from Jesus, it seems like praise and glorifying God just erupts out of people. It's the fitting response to God's showing of mercy. And not only that, but this man threw himself at Jesus' feet. That is what you do when you're giving homage, homage to a king. And he thanked him. Could it be this is the Messiah? And here's where Luke throws in the observation. He was a Samaritan. Verse 16. Maybe his accent gave him away or the tone of his skin or the style of his clothes. Who knows? But the point is, he was the surprise worshiper, the unexpected penitent. He was the one that maybe the Jewish people would assume would be the last to clue into who Messiah was. And Jesus both delights in the praise that he's receiving and he notes the absence of the others. We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise except this Foreigner? That's a very important word, foreigner. It's the Greek word allogenes. Diane Chen explains that this, this word is the term used on inscriptions in the Jerusalem temple that barred outsiders from going into areas where only Jews were allowed. You can see a picture of this plaque on the outside of the place of worship. It says, no allogenes, no man of another nation or no foreigner to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. Welcome to church. <laughs> James Edwards says, allogenes was apparently a catchword among Jews, a verbal boundary marker like Sabbath, circumcision, pork, dividing Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean, purity and defilement. In this temple warning inscription, it designated a foreigner whose ritual defilement was so odious that in the precincts of the sanctuary, it would be grounds for death. So Jesus is saying, no one came back to worship except the one person who is barred from worship? Is anyone else seeing what I'm seeing? Matthew Henry commented 200 years ago that ingratitude is a very common sin. Of the, of the many that receive mercy from God, there are few, very few, that return to give thanks in a right manner, scarcely one in ten, that render according to the benefit done to them. But this one is here, prostrate at Jesus' feet. This man who's physically, ethnically, and religiously excluded is the one who found the kingdom of God coming near to him. He's recognizing that God has come in the flesh, that the Messiah is here. Jesus, who embodies the power of God to provide and heal and restore and bless, must be the presence of God. This man could never have entered the temple, but here he has the privilege of bowing in worship at the feet of his Lord. And Jesus accepts and he affirms his worship. He says, rise and go. Your faith has made you well, made you whole. It's the same word that's used throughout the New Testament for saved. 
Your faith has saved you. So what is this kind of faith that saves, that makes us whole? N.T. Wright explains that faith here means not just any old belief, any generally religious attitude to life, but the belief that the God of life and death is at work in and through Jesus. And the trust that this is not just a vague general truth, but that it will hold good in this case, here and now. Faith that makes us whole is willing to look beyond the gift to the giver. It's a faith that trusts, that accepts, that embraces the fact that the God of life and death is at work in and through Jesus here and now. So I see a few invitations here for our belief this morning, for our trust. First, we're invited to believe that Jesus cares. I hope you hear that no one is so far gone, so far in the wilderness, so far excluded from the village that Jesus will not hear your cry for mercy. That is the fairy tale ending of the Christian story. There's a great reversal on the horizon. Whatever you have been told makes you unclean. Jesus is willing to care for you in his compassion and his followers are called to do the same. Second, we're invited to see that Jesus is God. When Matthew spoke on this passage back in April, he identified our tendency to practice a a vending machine faith. And we don't really know whether these nine ever followed up with Jesus. They were simply thrilled to get their lives back in order. They didn't give Jesus title of master or his power to heal a second thought after this. The transaction was complete, right? They came in need, dropped the coin in, the need was met, and they moved on. Only this one man realized what this healing meant. Why go to a temple to meet God? When he'd met God where he lived in a back alley on the wrong side of the tracks. The grace and mercy he could never access at the temple had come out to him. The holy presence hidden at the heart of the temple had slipped out and moved into his broken neighborhood. Right here in and through Jesus, the power of God had removed the stain that had driven him out from people and he was made whole. And so we're called, in this moment, Jesus meets his need and he wants to meet our need so that we can meet him. Romans 1 describes the heart of the sin that separated us from God in this way. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him or gave thanks to him. Those things that one leper did, they did neither of those things, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Do you notice where that relationship broke down? Forgetting, maybe even refusing to glorify God and give thanks to him. Becoming satisfied with the gifts, the the created things. Giving our best to the gifts rather than to the giver. But God was not satisfied to let that state of affairs just play out to our destruction. 
Jesus came to show us as clearly as possible the things we had refused, the things we'd forgotten. To show us the heart of the giver. And we shouldn't miss this new opportunity we've been given. You see, when Jesus meets our needs, we miss the point if we settle for a vending machine faith. Jesus answers our prayers to tell us something about himself. He wants us to look beyond the gifts to the giver. He's telling us that he is God, that he's alive, powerful, present, and available. He's showing us that all his promises can be counted on. He wants to show us that he and not evil and brokenness has the last word. To be healed is to encounter Jesus, the healer, the savior, the king who's worthy of our praise. See, gratitude recognizes the relationship that is at the heart of God's provision for us. If there's a gift, there's a giver. And the giver gives to us so that we can know and love him and know him to be the one that loves us. Look beyond the gift to the giver. Jesus delights when we delight in being loved and known by him. When like Chesterton, we not only give thanks for the new stockings, not only for the legs to put in the stockings, but for the God who would delight to make us at all. When we do that, we're getting to the heart of what we're made for. We're being made whole. We're being saved from the ignorance and the foolishness and the futility that separated us from God. In other words, the best thanks that we can give to God is our faith, our trust. All we need is in him and from him. Trust that leads to our salvation isn't about what we do at all. Faith that saves happens when we trust Jesus to live the life we never could have lived, to die the death that we deserved, to give us the life that we could never produce on our own, to give us an identity that is not based in our achievements or even our desires. Faith that saves puts all our weight on Jesus not just on the things that Jesus gives us. The gifts are signs pointing to the giver. And I know how easy this can be. I recognize that how often I bring my requests to God and I just accept his answers like the nine. I just want him to get me out of a jam. I want to have a life free of worries and deficits. I I want God to supply what I want so I can construct the comfortable life I've been building. For myself. That's the way I pray. And when I receive what I need, I just accept it without giving extra time and attention to God. I don't always see these gifts as Jesus bid to me for a deeper relationship. I don't see them as his call to a deeper apprenticeship in the ways of his kingdom. You see, Jesus doesn't just want to keep cleaning up my messes, whether I've caused them or others have caused them in my life. Although he still, in his kindness, stoops to do that when I do cry out for mercy. But Jesus wants to make me whole. He wants to make me the kind of person who makes less messes. Who's transformed from the inside out. Whose life is built by the life-giving ways of his kingdom. That's why we love the Freedom Session course that leads people through a process of finding wholeness with Jesus. That's why we love ministries like Wagner Hills that we heard about a couple of weeks ago. 
right? It's one thing to get sober, but the gospel, the good news of Jesus' victory over sin and death and evil means to remake us from the inside out. And Jesus can only give me that gift of wholeness if I sort of, if I'm willing to set aside all those piecemeal calls for mercy that I keep bringing him and I, I say, okay, Jesus, I surrender my whole life to you. You are master. You know, there's a whole research field in positive psychology that studies the impact of gratitude. Researchers find that gratitude helps people feel happier and healthier, even in difficult times, and it reduces the negative impacts of disease and stressful situations. In fact, they've observed how gratitude is, when gratitude is practiced, it amplifies the good things in our lives, right? When you practice gratitude for the few good things you have, even in hard times, you become more aware of the good, which then increases your sense that good is there, which then increases your gratitude for the good, and it just becomes this amazing cycle. The beginning of our service, we sang, Christ be magnified. Christ be amplified. Imagine what would happen if we not only just gave thanks for the gifts and, and opened our eyes to the, the good things in our lives, but if we would amplify the presence of God in our lives, how would that change us? How would that transform us and make us whole? We learned that attitude, or we heard that attitude of gratitude in uh, what Chesterton said, right? The world was a shock, but it was not merely shocking. Existence was a surprise, but it was a pleasant surprise. That realization for Chesterton was an important insight on his journey to the Christian faith. But here's the point which Chesterton makes a little later in Orthodoxy. He says, I had always vaguely felt facts to be miracles in the sense that they were wonderful. Now I began to think the miracles in the stricter sense that they were willful. I mean that they were or might be repeated exercises of some will. In short, I'd always believed that the world involved magic. Now I thought that perhaps it involved a magician. And this pointed to a profound emotion always present and subconscious, that this world of ours has some purpose, and if there's a purpose, there's a person. I'd always felt life first as a story, and if there's a story, there's a storyteller. In other words, gratitude that makes us whole always looks beyond the gift to the giver. And who is this giver? We need to remember that Jesus did not come to just stand apart from us and speak you know, healing words from a distance. Jesus drew near into the alienating wilderness of our world. He joined the broken human community and he took the infection and the alienation that was a consequence of our sin upon himself in his death on the cross. He knows what it's like to be broken and excluded, to face death. But then he rose from the dead, showing his power to make even the worst brokenness whole. And along with his sympathy for us, he now offers the gift of his power to heal, to make whole, to save us. 
And so the Apostle Paul describes how we respond to this gift. Romans 10 verse 9, he says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be made whole. And in John 6.40, Jesus says, My Father's will is that that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. And we need to remember that eternal life is not just life after death. It's the inexhaustible life that we are given as soon as we believe. A life that's renewed day by day. A life that endures, the same life that animated the life of Jesus. A life that transforms us from the inside out, even when our physical bodies may weaken. So where are you at today? Maybe you've been the kind of person who hasn't given God much thought except when you're in trouble. Maybe you can even look back and see some times where your cries of mercy have been answered, but you haven't really looked beyond the gift to the giver. Maybe today is the day to open yourself up to this relationship that Jesus wants to have with you. He's absolutely willing to help you clean up messes, and that's often where it begins, but he wants to make you whole. He wants to save you. And give you his own eternal life. And all it takes for you to receive that from him is to see and acknowledge and trust him to be savior. To embrace him as your master. Perhaps for you, you realize that journey of wholeness is is what you need. And it might be time to sign up for Freedom Session. Maybe you've heard about it and you thought, sounds like a big deal and now it's time. I want to remind you that you can register for that and take that journey this fall. This morning as we close, we always want to remind you that you have the opportunity to receive prayer. Maybe you've come today and you are just desperate for healing. You're crying out for mercy today. And we would love to pray with you about that. Or maybe you are ready to open up your life to a relationship with Christ to make Christ not just your, your you know, intervention in the difficult times, but the one who walks with you all the time. We'd love to pray with you about that. Or maybe there's just something you are bursting with gratitude about and you just would love to, to rejoice with somebody and we'd, we'd love to pray with you about that as well. But as I close, I just want to take a few moments to pray in gratitude to Jesus and to offer ourselves to him again. So would you bow with me? Spirit of God, the very fact that we are alive and breathing and conscious right now is a gift. You are the source of life. We have no life apart from you. Creator, we pause and bring to mind the beauty that has taken our breath away in the places we've been this summer. God, it is a beautiful world. 
May pondering it increase our love for you. Heavenly Father, we bring to mind your provision for us and the answers you've given to our prayers in this season. God, the fact that you've cared for us and that we don't have to worry about these things because you've given them gives us that extra freedom to seek after you and find you to be near. Great storyteller, we're humbled when we see our own individual stories within this great narrative of your saving work that began so many millennia ago. Before the foundation of the world, you were thinking of us. You were thinking of how you would make us whole through the work of Christ. We're amazed when we see you continuing to seek us out, even in our wilderness, one by one. Lord, would you help us as we learn how to make our lives a thanksgiving for all that you've done and all you continue to do. And Lord Jesus, we come back to you and what you've done to make us whole. In your life, your death, your resurrection, the gift of your spirit, your promise to return, you've made a way for us to be saved, to find wholeness, to live an eternal kind of life. God, we want to give our lives to you in gratitude again. Let us not be like the nine who just saw your provision as a mere transaction. God, the knowledge of your goodness causes us to fall at your feet in worship. So receive our gratitude and enable us to love you as we ought.